from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News. Today, Neo Financial raises $185 million to shake up Canada's Big Five. Egypt's PayMob raises $50 million with an eye on SMEs. And blessed are the NFT makers. The Vatican steps into the metaverse. All this and more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Let's face it, cards were not designed for online. Payments can take days to settle, hurting customer loyalty, while high fraud, clunky checkouts, and expensive fees means millions in missed revenue. At TrueLayer, we've made instant payments available for businesses across Europe and the UK, so you can cut costs, fight fraud, and get money moving faster. To learn more, visit TrueLayer.com forward slash payments. Welcome to episode 628 of Fintech Insider. My name is Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Kate Moody, Global Strategy Director of Customer Experience at 11FS. How are you doing, Kate? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Very busy week at work, and my son has just started crawling at home, so it's absolute pandemonium at home as well. So yeah, busy, busy, every direction. Oh yes, you think you've got it all sorted, and then they start moving. It's an absolute disaster zone. I cannot do, I have no DIY skills whatsoever, so it's it's, it's going downhill rapidly. <laughs> of course, as always, we're joined by some very special guests. First up, making a very welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Barb McLean, VP of Integration and Analytics at Solero. Welcome back to the show, Barb. Can you give our audience a brief reintroduction to you and to Solero, please? Thank you so much. So pleased to be back. And yes, I'm you know head of our integration and analytics team here. I like to say that I get to work with the best team in Solero because we get to do all of the fun things as we're working with credit unions. And we provide banking and payments and integration services primarily to credit unions in the Canadian market. And it's a FinTech Insider debut for Aya Ibrahim, Commercial Director at PayMob. Welcome to the show, Aya. We'll get into your news a little bit later in the show, but can you give our audience the sort of elevator pitch on PayMob, please? PayMob is an omni-channel merchant financial service platform. Uh, We enable more than 100,000 merchants across the country to accept, pay, manage, and grow their businesses through comprehensive suite of payment solutions. Our merchants can accept more than 28 different payment methods online or in-store, as well as pay out their bills, their suppliers, and employees just with the press of a button. Fantastic. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, it's a debut for Mary Ann Azevedo, Senior Editor at TechCrunch. Welcome, Mary Ann. Our audience are probably very familiar with TechCrunch, but can you give uh, listeners an introduction to you and to your newsbeat? What do you cover? Yes. Hi, I'm, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, my primary beat at TechCrunch is uh, fintech, which is why it makes sense that I'm here. <laughs> and uh, I've been covering fintech in earnest uh, for almost two years. And it's been it's been an amazing experience just watching the, the sector explode and you know, we're just inundated with news. So very busy here at TechCrunch covering fintech. 
Well, welcome to all three of you. And with that, let's get into the news. So first up, and this was reported in Business Insider and many other media, Canadian Neo Financial's 185 million US dollar fundraise signals confidence in digital banks. Canadian uh, digital bank Neo Financial raised 147 million Canadian dollars or 185 million American dollars in a funding round. In addition to the funding, Neo Financial announced that it has reached 1 million users. The digital bank offers cashback, savings and investment products and later this year plans to offer mortgages. It also touts a number of partnerships with retailers with which Neo Financial offers products like co-branded credit cards and buy now pay later options. According to co-founder and CEO Andrew Chow, the bank was started to challenge the big five banks that control around 90% of banking market share in Canada. Bob, makes sense to come to you on this. We've had a number of digital banks launch in Canada over the past decade or even a couple of decades if we go all the way back to sort of ING Direct or someone. Um, is Neo's success a significant marker? Is is there something different? Is, you know, is, is there a different feeling about Neo? I, I think it is, partially because they're operating outside of what would be the traditional territory of where you might expect somebody to grow up out of. I think we've seen, you know, if we look to the past, these traditional tech hubs, be they in Toronto, maybe you're looking at Vancouver. Um, if you're looking at an AI flavor specifically, you're probably thinking about Montreal. But nobody's thinking about fintech growing up on the prairies. I know when I was first on the podcast here back in 2017, I literally said out loud, I'm from Winnipeg and why am I on this podcast? <laughs> um, so it's really quite exciting, I think, for us to see, and I might be badly quoting Simon Taylor here on, you know, talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And this is such a good example of an organization that had prior success. The founders, of course, were founders of Skip the Dishes, also growing up out of the Canadian prairies, if you can imagine. And then taking that success and translating it back to helping to solve this kind of problem for the Canadian market. As much as, yes, we have seen neobanks grow up over the last number of decades, there haven't been very many. And so for an organization like Neo to have had the success that they've had in the short amount of time that they've been working at this, I, I think is tremendous because it displays not only the desire for organizations to come and solve these problems in the Canadian market, sometimes we're too small for anybody else to care. So if we don't have these homegrown solutions, um, you know, we, we might uh, be missing out on some of these capabilities. So I, it's really exciting. I don't, I don't believe that people don't care about Canada. I find that very hard to believe. Uh, <laughs> um, is there, I mean, it's lovely to hear stories of businesses that are growing up away from the sort of big commercial hubs and so on. And, you know, that's fantastic. And as you say, it creates lots of opportunity for people People there. Is there a different customer proposition? I mean, is, is, it, is the customer proposition just the same as, as, as the other banks? Or is there, is there something distinctively sort of prairie-like about the proposition? Is it aimed at maybe slightly different Canadians, or is it fairly standard from what you've seen? Well, I think they've taken a bit of a different road than some of the other neobanks that we've seen growing up, like Coho, like Mogo. They actually didn't follow the prepaid card route. They actually went for a pure credit product. Um, and I think they also had a really interesting approach with the uh, 
you know, banking as a service kind of partnership that they formed with formerly known as Concentrabank, now with Financial. And so they're a really good, interesting early example of someone uh, doing that in the Canadian market as well, which we don't actually see a lot of that kind of banking as a service partnership up here, certainly not to the degree that we would see in the United States, as example. I think they do try to make their merchant partnerships relevant for the areas in which their customers are living, which again, tends to be focused outside of some of those traditional urban centers that you would think of. Um, so I think you combine those things together. And yes, absolutely, I would say they've got a bit of a unique proposition in the market. And a million Canadians think so as well. What, what did you think of this, Marianne? I mean, it, it, we, we see lots of new banks trying to break into markets and trying to break the dominance of big established banks. What, what do you think of Neo? Well, actually, I did cover this round for TechCrunch. And uh, one of the things that that we talked about when I spoke with the CEO is and I didn't realize this apparently in Canada, there's, there's like a big five, um, in terms of the, of banks in the, in the country. And so it's been sort of monopolized by these banks. And so fintechs coming in and trying to disrupt, it, it's a little bit different than like here in the U S where there's just, you know, thousands of, of banks operating. So I think that makes it even more impressive in my opinion, what Neo financial has been able to accomplish, what it's been able to do. I did speak with um, one of its investors, Andre Chiru of Maple VC, who is, I think he's based in San Francisco, but um, really focuses on investing in founders with Canadian roots. And he told me, in his opinion, Neo is the fastest growing company he'd seen in Canada. So in his view, the startup has a shot at owning at least 10% of the aggregated $550 billion banking sector in Canada due to the network effects it has created with its unique merchant lo loyalty program. Wow. Of course, he's an investor, so he's naturally going to be bullish, but <laughs> I, I still thought it was interesting. And he did go on to say that the startup has returned um, unrealized one third of the firm's second fund so far. So that's quite a lot. Kate, what was your perspective on this? I think, I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert in the Canadian market, but I think from what I'd seen, there was a bit of concern that you know COVID had really dampened down the the growth that we'd seen previously in the Canadian market. I think there'd been some concern. You know, I think I read a, an Accenture report that said that you know we'd seen I think forty plus fintechs founded in 2019, and that had dropped quite considerably during during COVID. Obviously, understandably, and it's, it's exciting and, and reassuring, I suppose, to see the likes of Neo starting to have success this year and seeing investment kind of go back into the Canadian market. So hopefully it's a sign of a return to growth. And and as you say, continuing to challenge that incumbent bank dominance, which, you know, we know from around the world that where incumbent banks go unchallenged, customers are underserved. So you know, this is fantastic to see for the market and for customers as well. Bob, had you, had you seen that kind of a, a drop in confidence in Canadian fintech and a, and a rebound or, or or do you feel it was not 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 so much? I, I would probably look at it more positively. You know, I think there's some really interesting stories. One that I would talk about is, um, you know, the folks at Zoom Rails. I think they literally founded themselves on, you know, it's a very traditional founder story on the one founder's parents' kitchen table. And then COVID hit. And the two founders, I think, only saw themselves for the first time in person, maybe a couple of weeks ago. And they literally have, you know, built this company together over a series of two years, never being in person. So there are really interesting stories like that out there. And so hearing those and seeing those and reading those, I think, puts me more in the things have been going probably okay for us here. Wow. 
<laughs> that's quite a, that's quite a story. Um, Aya, do you think you could, do you think you could have managed um, to set up Paymob if you'd never been able to see your other sort of founders and, and team members? Actually, interestingly enough, I moved to Paymob like a year and a half ago, and I hadn't seen the team for like the first six months. I was the commercial director without seeing anyone of the team. So yeah, I'm assuming that would be pretty hard to set up a company from scratch. <laughs> so because you had exactly that experience then of your first six months without without seeing anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Why do we see so many sort of um, so many banks, sort of new, new digital banks, trying to break into banking? Why is it why is it so hard for new digital banks to to break through? I mean, I know they've won a million customers, but there's correct me if I'm wrong, Bob. There's like thirty million Canadian people in Canada, so it's it's good, but it, it's it's not sort of breakthrough. Why is it so hard to get new digital banks going? I, mean, I guess it depends on what your measure of successes um you know obviously i think yeah 38 million i think last time i checked in terms of canada's population so Sorry. yeah i just want to you know i want to represent canada properly here um but no i think if you're measuring it purely on market share you know that that's going to take a long time to move because making the decision to change your financial provider isn't something you, you just do like that. Um, and in terms of, you know, lots of the stats seem to track, you know, deposits and percentage of deposits and where deposits held. And what we tend to see in most markets is that customers start to experiment with digital propositions by using them in addition to their, their current bank. And so you really, there's quite a long time between starting to use a product and then starting to move more of your financial products and services into into those accounts. So yeah, we shouldn't expect to see people move their deposits overnight. Really, we have to kind of look at the growth of, of customer numbers, look at the growth of usage of services within fintech offerings and then kind of measure that. And I think we'll see the the undermining of those incumbents happen over a longer, a longer period of time. But I think the, the early signs are promising. Bob, I sometimes feel that the Big Canadian banks do maybe a better job than the big banks in some of the other countries. It probably doesn't feel like that as a Canadian, perhaps. I don't know. Um, are there big gaps that you see in, in the services delivered by the, the big Canadian banks? Do you feel that there, there are a lot of underserved needs and that they're letting customers down? And, or do you think they're doing a good job with some gaps? Uh, I think there's probably three places where I would say there are a lot of unmet needs. Probably the biggest one is for small businesses. Like many countries, small business is the lifeblood of Canada. And I think small businesses are vastly underserved by the largest banks in the country. You know, they probably try and get retrofitted against a retail experience, which doesn't actually solve their problems because they're not big enough to consume the the purely commercial solutions that would be out there that are vastly beyond anything that they're needing. So they're trapped in that place in the middle that nothing is actually giving them what they need. I think there's been interesting plays against that. For example, you know, Shopify Capital would be one example of a good homegrown solution that is trying to also address that problem, but not coming from the big banks. So that would certainly be one um, constituency that is not well served here. The second is probably, uh, you know, new Canadians, people that are coming here from other places mm. in the world, because that's very much sort of a cultural touchstone for us is being welcoming to those that are coming here. 
Um, and I don't think those, you know, new Canadians are being very well served by the existing financial institutions either. The third I would say is people that are living outside of urban centers. Um, because the reality is, in as much as we've come through this last two years where, you know, nothing is happening in person, that ability to go to a physical financial institution locations is still sometimes important for some things and very important for some people. And we have certainly seen a withdrawal from the larger banks out of the uh, smaller and more rural communities. And I think that's um, the last that are, the, that are underserved because sometimes you don't even have the technology infrastructure to leverage the app. You actually can't get connected to high-speed internet in some of those places. And that's why you actually need that physical branch there. And when you think about the vast number of uh, you know, kilometers and the few number of people that live there, you've got 38 million people living in 10 million, you know, square kilometers. E even the access to those physical branches is few and far between, depending on where you live. You have a lot of space in Canada compared with uh, small European countries. Um, I do like that phrase, new Canadians. That's nicer than some of the hostile language that you sometimes hear about um, people who are trying to build a life in a new country. Okay, let's move on to our next story, which is that Egyptian fintech Paymob has raised $50 million, led by PayPal Ventures and Cora Capital. This was reported in TechCrunch. Um, Egyptian fintech Paymob, which enables merchants to accept digital payments online and in store, raised $50 million in Series B funding. PayPal Ventures, the corporate venture arm of Guess Who, PayPal, um, and New York-based venture capital uh, firm Cora Capital and London-based Claypoint led the round. Uh, it's one of the largest at this stage in Egypt and the whole Middle East and North Africa region. Brings Paymob's total funding to over $68 million. Paymob works with businesses and merchants of all sizes. Its omnichannel payment infrastructure allows it to accept payments via various methods, which Paymob claims to be the largest in Egypt. These include bank cards, mobile wallets, QR payments, uh, bank card installments, buy now, pay later, and various consumer finance payment options. Payment, Paymob also has a point-of-sale solution for offline merchants where they can receive in-store card payments. Aya, we're going to come to you first on this. So firstly, congratulations. Super exciting. What does this um, funding round enable you to do? Um, thank you. This is actually um, a game changer for us. Um, this will definitely enable us to expand our product range, what we have to offer in the market, and reinforce actually our leadership position in the Egyptian market. Uh, it will also enable us to really expand into new markets in the MEA region, whether it's the Middle East or North Africa. So this is really a game changer for us. How exciting is the sort of um, fintech in, in Egypt? I mean, Egypt? Egypt's obviously a big economy, so you know, a very large population. I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I've been wrong on population already in this show. I think it's the largest country in the um, Middle East and North Africa region. Um, um, yeah, we are the largest country. We have 102 million. The population currently has just reached 102 million. So we are a pretty large country. Um, and honestly, the fintech space in Egypt is very exciting at the moment. Um, there's a lot of startups and they're doing great things. Um, the ecosystem, we have a lot of BNPLs on the rise. We have a lot of consumer finance players in the market. And with the rise of the e-commerce after COVID, actually COVID worked in our favor a great deal. A lot of people redirected their spend more into the digital payments and they're more interested in digital payments. So it's actually a great time for investors to capture that growth. Which which types of... Um 
sort of businesses are you are you working with? I mean, and I know it's all all businesses, but is this mostly about sort of um, traditional merchants? Maybe you know that, that have sort of operated, you know, stores digitizing their payments and starting to take digital payments in stores, or is this um, Egyptians setting up new digital businesses? What's what's driving your business? We honestly, we, we focus on everyone. And honestly, we focus on both merchants. Actually, we have an entire line of business that's focusing on in-store merchants. And you focus on offering the in-store merchant multiple payment methods. And we also enable online merchants to have digital payments as well. So we are working in both tracks. Uh, and there's a huge market and appetite for both, honestly. What, um, which, which types of payments is it approving most popular? Are you seeing any, you seeing any changes or shifts in, in the way Egyptians are paying for things? Um, how, did, how did sort of coronavirus change, change behavior in Egypt? We are very cash dominant pre-corona. We are a very cash dominant country. Uh, people did not find the use in having to have digital payments. Actually, at some point, even though it was people were ordering online and using online shops and everything, they would still choose at the end of the day to pay cash on delivery. And I believe because people were leaning more towards contactless uh, payments, so actually digital payments enabled that for them. And this is where the real growth came from. Marianne, I'd love to bring you in. What did you What did you think of this of this story? Have you Have you Have you seen a lot of activity in the sort of Middle East, and North Africa that's exciting you? What, what did you think of this? Well, first of all, we do have a reporter on the ground in um, in Africa, Tage, who actually covered PayMom's funding round, and he's he's amazing. So he's probably more knowledgeable on this specific region. But what I have seen, yes, there's definitely a lot more investment dollars going into Amina, uh, Africa, Egypt in particular. I hear the uh, fintech sector is exploding. And I think part of that, from what I understand, is that the government is, is kind of finally um, making it easier for fintechs to to operate, and that enablement's really, really helping fuel uh, activity in the region. So, so I I was excited to see this. I also thought it was very interesting that uh, it marked PayPal Ventures' first investment in the MENA region as well. So I, I feel like there are more. Uh, more VCs, more investment uh, firms who are looking at the region that didn't previously, and it reminds me a little bit of Latin America a few years ago. That's a, that's a really really interesting point because I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but 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 all of the investors were international companies. Is that is that correct? Rather than Egyptian or or, or even other sort of. Arabian. Um, yes, a lot of the investors were international investors, but we have an A15 company, which is an Egyptian-based company, and they reinvested in us as well. But yes, I agree, most of the investors were international investors. Do we think we're seeing international investors suddenly sort of getting really excited about Egypt? I mean, we've seen a lot of investment going into, let's say, Nigeria, you know, another big sort of African economy over the past um, few years. Are we, are we seeing sort of international investors suddenly seeing the opportunities in Egypt and the wider Middle East region? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, if you just look at the numbers, then yeah, we can see that the amount of money being invested is going up. And it makes total sense when you look at the the Egyptian population, as I was, you know, alluded to, um, a very young population comparatively, with sort of a median age of, I think, of 24 the last time I checked, um, and a high, a very high proportion of unbanked customers, I think, are one of the highest proportions of unbanked customers in the world. So a huge opportunity to introduce you know, revolutionary services from that perspective to kind of really have a massive impact uh, with customers. And I suppose in contrast to you know, Canada, which we've just been talking about, where the challenge is to take people that are banked and to convert them or to help them transition over, you know, it's a really 
different challenge when you've got a massive unbanked population really like there's a, a much lower resistance in terms of incumbent players so it's a really exciting market um, and yeah I think both a very young population and also a very young and dynamic group of, of fintech founders as well I think a lot of the fintech founders themselves are, are young and so really have that strong connection with the audience that they are building for uh, and we tend to see really exciting products and services emerge when, when that's the case. I love that point about the serving the unbanked. Um, I mean, I, I the thing that, that sort of I always love is when fintechs really helping people and sort of bringing them into the the economies uh, and, and so on. Other, um, who are the people that you're really making a difference for? Is it? Do you think it's small merchants? Is it? Is it consumers? Um, Actually, both. We're making a difference for both. Um, when it comes to the SME, we mainly cater for SMEs. Um, Egypt's payment landscape was very fragmented. Uh, consumers prefer different payment methods from different card types and different wallets and BNPL providers. Um, before the government started pushing on a more seamless experience, what the SME had to do was actually uh, they had to pay very high setup fees monthly. They had to pay a premium fee every month as well. Uh, and then they had to have the technical team to follow up on the integrations and then proceed with going to each and every service provider payment provider and have and lock a deal on their rates and everything. But with the government pushing on digitization and enabling digital payment and financial inclusion, what they actually did was empower us to be able to have just a seamless experience where the merchant would come to us, he would have same day onboarding, just sign the contract, one single contract that enables 28 payment methods and that's it. So I believe this made SMEs actually more focused on their core business instead of the hassle of how to collect the payments. And it also availed options for the customers. Previously, customers, if only if they wanted to pay, they weren't, BMPLs weren't as common in Egypt. So actually, if they want to install something, it was a hassle. They had to do the documentation and so on. So now it's a much easier and seamless process. Marianne, you, you mentioned... Um... Latin America earlier. Are you seeing parallels between sort of North Africa and the Middle East and Latin America? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as mentioned, I feel like Africa is is in a place where Latin America was about five years ago. And that is when the startup scene there just was really starting to take off and more startups were actually being created. And now in Latin America, um, things have changed dramatically. There's record numbers of venture dollars going into the region. You're seeing global investors uh, flocking there in a way that they never have before, leading rounds, um, unicorns being born left and right. Uh, so I, I'm seeing similar parallels. And when you brought up the unbanked population, it also reminded me of Latin America because it's very similar. There was There's a very large unbanked population in the region. So the need for fintech innovation is is great and it's it's just massive. So the the inclusion component uh, I think is important in both regions so that fintechs are uh, not just about innovation but inclusion and helping more people have access to uh, digital banking, financial services, access to credit. So I, I think this is great. It's an it's a region to watch and I'm I'm really happy that that we're paying attention to it with Tage on the ground. Fantastic. Well, congratulations again, Aya. Super, super exciting. And we're all going to be keeping a close eye on uh, how, how you do over the next uh, few months and years. Um, for more on Egyptian fintech, keep an eye out on the Fintech Insider podcast feed for a dedicated podcast episode hosted by our very own Kate Moody, um, which will be dropping in the next couple of weeks. Okay, we're just going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors back shortly. 
Did you know that the majority of people are investing in cryptocurrency through a taxable account when they could be using an IRA, that's an individual retirement account, and avoiding or deferring those taxes? With Alto Crypto IRA, you can invest in crypto without tax headaches, creating a free account in only minutes. Choose from over 150 coins and invest with as little as $10. That's right, only 10 bucks. No setup charges and no account fees. To open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as $10, just go to altoira.com forward slash insider. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A dot com forward slash insider. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. Tiger Global has been hit by 17 billion in losses in a tech route. I might just say that again, $17 billion. Um, This was reported in the Financial Times and various other media. Tiger Global has been hit by losses of about $17 billion during this year's technology stock sell-off, marking one of the biggest dollar declines for a hedge fund in history. The run of poor performance means that the firm has, in four months, erased about two-thirds of its gains since its launch in 2001, according to calculations by LCH Investments. Tiger Global is one of the world's biggest hedge funds and a big investor in high-growth speculative companies whose shares have tumbled since their pandemic peaks. The losses were estimated by LCH, a fund of hedge funds run by the Edmond de Rothschild Group, which is an authority on dollar gains and losses made by hedge funds for their clients, and which compiles an annual list of the world's top money managers. Tiger declined to comment, but a person familiar with the fund told the FT that investors who put their money into the fund at launch have made more than 20 times their initial investment. So, huge losses. Um, Bob, you're, you're quite familiar with some of some of this. What, what's your what's your take here? Are they just taking too much risk? Are they unlucky? Could this have happened to anyone? Um, what did you think of this story? Uh, my first thought was the market's got Tiger by the tail here. I think. Good one. You know, is this unique to Tiger? I don't know. Um, I mean, I think we've seen um, maybe not some unanticipated sell-offs. People have been talking about: is this you know the next? Uh, dot-com bubble a few decades later. So, um, you know, I think there's some interesting stories potentially under the covers here on some, you know, large losses. Doesn't matter whose currency you're talking about. When you're talking about billions with a B, this is a big deal to somebody. You know, I I think some of what we do know uh, here or what we uh, have seen reported Um, you know, that it's double the decline of some of the, you know, NASDAQ or other composite indexes, right? So something unique is probably happening within Tiger. Is it uh, about sort of how they govern their portfolio companies? Um, They they do tend to work with um, other consultancies like Bain, um, you know, to actually support those those companies after, after the investment. And, you know, maybe they weren't taking uh, enough of a risk mitigation approach with having as as touch a close a touch point to those organizations as they should have. Marianne, what were, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the figure was astonishing. I mean, I think my jaw literally dropped when I first first read it. Uh, it was shocking. And so the the number of articles that I've written over the past year or so in which Tiger led a very large round is just, I mean enormous. And one of the things that we've all been hearing here in the in this world of startup reporting is that Tiger Global moves very, very quickly. They will talk to a, a company and, and in a very short amount of time, they're ready to write a check. So one has to wonder if if this, 
you know, due diligence process maybe could have been fine-tuned a little bit. Um, and so rather than just writing checks into companies so quickly, maybe that strategy wasn't the best one for Tiger. And maybe they should have taken a little more time and conducted a little more due diligence. It, I, I should say, though, that I don't think this is exclusive to Tiger. I think a lot of uh, firms last year were, were doing similar things because of this competitive environment and, and FOMO and fear of missing out. And I think that's exactly why we're seeing this market correction we're seeing now. Um, and and then those of us, again, covering this space as we have are not entirely surprised by it because it just wasn't sustainable. And one other quick thought. <laughs> um, I do think Tiger did notice or did realize a few months back or maybe last year sometime that, that things Things were not uh, working out in the way that they had hoped when they decided to pull back on late stage investing some. I've been seeing the firm back um, other venture firms that are doing very, very early stage investing. So I don't know if that's in response to its performance or what, but but I do think that's notable. This is too much money, too much venture capital money chasing too few opportunities, maybe driving people to, you know, to Marianne's point, driving people to move too fast, too aggressively. It's hard to tell, I guess. Yeah, we want to. Uh, to Marianne's point, it's not. This isn't the only thing that's going on in you know, the world of investment right now. You know, we've seen Apple lose its position today as the world's most valuable company. So yeah, it's not just these fintech startups, these fintech unicorns who've who've seen drops uh, in in their valuations. So um, we are going through a period of sort of macroeconomic uncertainty. Um, you know, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. I think they're trying to curb inflation. I think that's starting to make investors understandably a little bit nervous about some of these very high growth companies where the investment case was often really dependent on big earnings promised far out of the future. It's harder to have confidence in that when you don't quite know what the future is going to hold. So um, yeah, no, I think it's it's obviously concerning and there are questions to be asked about the level of due diligence that these these companies are, are applying. But you know, on the other hand, you know, they've even relatively recently continued to raise significant funds. You know, people are still confident to give these companies the money to go out and spend. Um, so I think if the, if the if the funds are there, they're probably going to keep applying them out into the world. And and we kind of need funding to go to fintechs to, to help support growth, and we want fintechs to grow to bring better services to customers. So it's a very difficult balance to to strike. Yes, it's it's very easy to sit here and say, how did they lose seventeen? billion dollars, but actually, of course, they have funded a, a, a lot of businesses. I mean, I, I, I coming to you, how, how important is, you know, that that sort of venture capital funding to, you know, businesses like yours, you know, startups, um, you know, like yours in Egypt? I mean, that, we were talking about how a lot of your funding came from international companies. How important has that been in driving fintech? This has been like crucial in driving uh, the fintech industry in Egypt. Um, actually, if you've seen the growth that has happened uh, throughout the last couple of years in Egypt, for example, in 2014, there were only like two fintech startups. And in 2019, this figure is just accelerated into 57 startups, fintech startups. And by the end of 2021, there were 112 companies. And this just made Egypt like the second largest fintech ecosystem in the MENA region. So we really depend on those fundings. So they're crucial to us for the growth and for the financial inclusion in the country. One of the things I love about this story is that um, Tiger Global is still called a hedge fund. And of course, you know, its strategy is really 
a very long way from hedging. There's nothing about hedging when you you know make a lot of bets on lots of small companies. Well, I suppose you're hedging because you're diversifying, but it's not exactly hedging. Um, do we do we think we might see a, a slightly a change in the way VCs think and see a little bit more caution coming through from VCs? Do we think we're moving into an era of you know particularly with you know interest rates changing and so on? Do we think we're going to see some sort of more caution come through? I think absolutely we are. I, I did talk to one fintech investor yesterday who told me that he hadn't made an investment since October, and he's being very conscious, uh, and his firm is being very conscious in what companies they're they're choosing to back. Um, also, there is the the issue of LPs, um, you know, backing out, and I've been hearing of things like uh, founders who had commitments that suddenly um, were taken out from under them because VC firms weren't getting. The backing they expected from their LPs due to what's happening in the public markets and the macro environment. So, um, unfortunately, all of that is going to trickle down. VCs might have no choice but to pull back a little bit. And I think generally, a lot of them are, are just starting to realize, you know, that we they need not we, but that they need to um, to back companies that are, are more than just ideas um, that that have some traction, like. Re- Real traction, um, and you know, I I think they're just going to be expecting the companies that they already backed to be showing some results. Is it maybe less um, cautious but more realistic? You know, going back to our first story, and you know, a certain amount of money raised that maybe seems small in comparison, uh, but is it actually enabling that outcome of some of these companies have to get to profitability eventually? Everybody can't just keep spending the fund manager's money. Uh, and claiming that growth was the answer or the outcome that they were seeking. Um, So I would say it's maybe a bit more realism um, coming from those funds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think think that's really accurate, actually. Yeah, taking the rose-colored glasses off and just like waking up to reality a little bit. Yeah, looking for profits, not just growth, indeed. Well said. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to our final, our last big story. Um, This is that Sequoia, Binance, and A16Z are among a group of 19 investors backing Elon Musk's Twitter bid. This was reported uh, widely, including by Altfi. Um, So after striking a deal with Twitter to buy the social media platform for $44 billion, Elon Musk has seen a surge of backers from the fintech world. According to the regulatory filing, Sequoia Capital has given Musk $800 million, while the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, Binance, has financed $500 million. Silicon Valley venture capital firm A16Z chipped in $400 million in backing and shared its support for Elon Musk on Twitter, of course. Uh, DFJ Growth VC also invested $100 million, while Honeycomb Asset Management contributed $5 million and asset management giant Fidelity contributed $316 million. Um, Why are fintechs so keen to get involved in Twitter, and I do know the answer to that in case I sound like a total idiot. <laughs> um, Bob, why, why the love in between fintech and Twitter, do you think? Um, so I actually am going to answer your question with a different uh, view of who is actually interested. Because for me, the thing that I thought was interesting was the number of banks involved in the funding. So I think there was about uh, a dozen banks that, that came into that, including two Canadian banks. So RBC and CIBC. So beyond maybe the more obvious, what does a, a fintech care about in Twitter? 
Um, why would some of the more traditional financial institutions be investing in Twitter and, and investing in Elon Musk? Um, so I thought that was actually the more interesting angle. This is a very interesting angle. Um, do you know the answer to it? Because I, I have to admit, I don't. Um, I think for the Canadian banks, I would have to imagine it's their continued pursuit of some um, cross-border diversification. I think because of their vast um, oligopoly, you know, their growth actually can't come from the Canadian market anymore. So that felt like the obvious answer for two of those 12 banks. Um, for the others, I probably wouldn't wouldn't want to comment. <laughs> what about you, Marianne? What did you What did you think? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's hard to it's hard to say, right? What What are the motives of all these firms or banks? Uh, for sure, I know that Twitter had this partnership with Stripe, where some creators are getting paid in crypto. That that may be a factor, um, like cryptocurrency exchange Binance put in five hundred million dollars uh, to fund to fund this buy. Um, I know that Elon Musk has said he wants to to do some more to monetize on Twitter, which I'm not sure what to think about that um, and saying he's going to keep it free to most users, like casual users, but may charge a, a slight fee for commercial and government users. So, you know, I don't know if the, the financial or related investors see a way to cash in on that. It's an interesting question about what, a, what becomes a commercial user. I mean, if you register as... Uh, yourself versus if you register with yourself as an employee, do you flip from one side to the other? Does that mean we all just, you know, we all just register with our sort of Gmail addresses or whatever? If we didn't already register that way, um, how do you how do you dis- differentiate between commercial users and? It's very difficult. I think we increasingly see you know, people blurring the boundaries between their personal and their professional lives. You know, just me yeah. personally. You know, I have. A Twitter account, but I don't really differentiate between what I post as an employee and what I post as an individual. So there'll probably be a mix of like fintech and cake, but you know, it's it's kind of the, the boundaries get blurred. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see how how Elon Musk plans to, as you say, plans to make that categorization. Um, obviously, we're seeing a lot of excitement around the creator economy at the moment. Obviously, the I think we're going to touch on NFTs in a bit, but you know, kind of that whole drive around trying to create communities and platforms and ways for people to sort of share and exchange uh, through digital platforms is, is really, really taking off. So maybe they kind of see that as as a way for them to engage. Investors see this as a way to engage in that space about having to move into some of the, the less less known parts of, of, of the crypto world. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to tell. And obviously with Elon Musk involved, you'd never really want to predict anything because I suppose he seems to uh, base a lot of his brand on being unpredictable so it's an interesting <laughs> I'll be interested to see that what that investor case looked like I'd love to see it published uh, Twitter Twitter's definitely struggled to sort of monetize hasn't it compared with compared with some of the other social media platforms it's also of course nothing like as widespread or as popular as, as you know Facebook or um, some, some of the other, other platforms um, Aya is is uh, is Twitter popular in Egypt? Um, is is there widespread use in the sort of Middle East and North Africa region, or is it again something of a niche platform? Um, actually, Twitter is pretty. Uh, it's pretty like popular when it comes to the Gulf areas more, but it's not pretty big in Egypt. Like, um, it's definitely big. People know it and everything, but it's not one of the top social media web platforms in Egypt. Do we think that this sort of the creator economy? 
is is how far how far is that going to grow? I mean, what proportion of the population can really earn a living from creating content um, for other people? I mean, I realize that you know most young people in their bedrooms, you know, hope to become you know uh, famous musicians. But realistically, what proportion of, of people can really take part in the creator economy? And you know, how much how much creation do we want to consume as as <laughs> relative to uh, you know the other things that drive the economy, like you know energy or telecoms or um, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to predict. You know, I think there are some um, figures out there who've, who've attempted to put an estimate on it because obviously it's an area of, of interest. So I think um, you know, Influencer Marketing Hub estimates the creator economy is going to be worth $104 billion uh, in the future. And so obviously, as you know, Bob was saying, anything that's got a, got a B in it tends to get people excited. So um, I think it definitely feels like an area of an area of growth and especially for business again as Bob said where they might have reached the the ceiling of their, their current audience again people are looking to diversify and looking for ways to introduce new revenue streams so it probably feels like a a good trend to to tap into but it's at a relatively early stage in the grand scheme of things. Okay, the big question then, does Twitter need an edit button? You know, we see these sort of spats between, you know, different fintechs as people start saying things they shouldn't and sort of getting cross with each other. Um, Marianne, you're a journalist. Um, (laughs) Should there be an edit button on Twitter? Oh, I have mixed feelings about that. Uh, I'm sure we've all tweeted uh, occasionally and and wish we hadn't tweeted what we did, but there's the delete button, so there's that. But um, I don't know. I think... I think once the thing about Twitter is even once you've deleted a tweet, it doesn't mean it's gone. Um, people may have already screenshot what you, what you posted. Um, same thing with edit button. So like really how much does that mean at the end of the day? Like if you can edit, but your original post could still very well be floating out there. I think it's like the recall email functionality like as soon as yeah. anyone recalls an email i'm definitely going to read that email first like that <laughs> did that ever work has anybody ever successfully recalled an e- email like, i don't think it works <laughs> I, I never got that um and and also just a quick point about the creator economy i i feel like the pandemic has really fueled you know this the number of creators out there more people who who've kind of um decided they didn't want to work full-time anymore or traditional jobs or wanted to to be remote and just pursue their creative um, instincts. I, I'm not sure, but uh, I have to admit I'm a little bit skeptical on, on the long-term future of the creator economy. I do think it's kind of the very, very talented or, or the ones who can really just have have a knack for attracting massive amounts of followers may continue to do well. But I, I feel like, again, it's just going to be sort of, there has to be some sort of weeding out at some point. Um, but that's, that's just me. I, I think, I think you're right. I think lo- there are lots of people who are brilliantly talented, but they can't all be talented in creating content. There are people who are brilliantly talented in starting up, you know, amazing restaurants or new businesses and have, you know, creative in lots of different ways. I think that the proportion of the, of people who can be creative with content is, is can't be that huge just because we only have so much time in the day to consume content. Okay. Let's move on. Thank you. Let's move on to a few stories that we don't have time to cover in depth. So we're going to quickly round up a few. Um, Kate, do you want to get us started? Yep, absolutely. So first story in this section comes from AltFi. So Stripe's Patrick Collison hits back at Plaid CEO's accusations. 
So Stripe's Patrick Collison has hit back at claims from Plaid CEO Zachary Perret that Stripe had imitated their business model for their open banking product called Financial Connections. In a company memo made public by his brother, John Collison, Stripe's president said he was bothered quite a bit by the accusation of less than upstanding dealings between the two companies in relation to the new product. He also said Jay Shah, Stripe's head of product, and a key character in the saga, was a scrupulously ethical individual. Shah, he confirmed, did interview with Plaid eight years ago, but the Financial Connections product wasn't conceived at the time of the interview, with the build starting a few years later. The pair's issues seem to have been worked out, at least for now. That's how it's playing out on social media, with Perez saying it may have been a misunderstanding and that he was presuming positive intent. So I think there are several interesting elements to Patrick's memo so I definitely recommend checking it out on Twitter uh, if you're interested in Stripe which probably anyone who has an interest in fintech should be uh, so whilst it sounds like both parties are keen to downplay this and to get back into the friendship zone I'm personally quite interested to see how this shapes both Stripe and Plaid's attitudes towards partnerships going forwards um, and also whether we start to see more open discussions about Stripe's future roadmap which is one of the things that Patrick talks about in the memo you know it certainly sounds like Stripe's Leaderships are expecting these types of potential conflicts to keep occurring as they grow. So they're obviously going to go after lots of other existing product spaces in the market. So watch out, everyone. I love the way he was bothered quite a bit. Um, <laughs> and he used the word kerfuffle as well, which is one of my favorite words. I thought it was interesting that the memo was made public. I feel like that that was not unintentional. Uh, I feel like it was a bit strategic. Yeah, it also kind of still adds to the slightly weird dynamics of the whole drama like you know it's his brother saying what his brother said why can't people just speak to each other it's it's very bizarre indeed next up uh, dutch uh, digital bank bunk is vying for ulster bank and kbc account holders in ireland this was reported in the irish times and various other places um so bunk is seeking customers from ulster bank and kbc bank ireland um by launching in the in, in Ireland with a banking product that uses Irish international bank account numbers or IBANs. Uh, the Amsterdam-based company, which was founded about a decade ago, will be the first digital bank in Ireland to offer accounts with Irish IBANs as opposed to Dutch ones, which sounds fairly um, uh, irrelevant and obscure, but actually it makes it much easier to set up things like direct debits. Um, so Bunk says the offering, which will be available through its online app, will enable customers to easily set up direct debits and make and receive payments, including monthly salaries. And this is happening when the Irish banking market is bracing itself as more than a million Ulster Bank customers and KBC Ireland current and deposit account customers are being forced to find new homes for their money and day-to-day -day banking over the next year because both of those banks are pulling out of the Republic of Ireland. So really interesting story. Um, Ireland, obviously a relatively small market dominated by um, Bank of Ireland and allied Irish banks historically, though permanent TSB and a couple of others have been pushing in. Um, Revolut is also very successful, um, very well established in the market. So great to see Bunk coming in and driving some more competition. Um, it's a big ask. Um, you know, Irish people actually use Revolut as a verb um, because it's so well established there. So Bunk has got a lot of work to do. But I think the, the IBAN thing and making it easier for people to switch is going to be quite compelling. My question is, what proportion of those Ulster Bank and KBC customers are people, younger customers or digitally minded customers who are going to look for a digital account versus how many of them are people who maybe would feel more comfortable with a, with a bank branch? Um, but super interesting, always good to see more competition. And I think the challenge for smaller countries sometimes is that 
you know, the big firms skip them. So great to see that. Um, good news for Irish people, I think. Absolutely. Uh, and then our story in this section is from The Verge. So Google Chrome is getting built-in virtual credit cards. Google is adding a feature to Chrome's autofill system called Virtual Card Numbers, which lets you hide your credit or debit card number while making purchases on the web. Google says this feature will help make it easy to securely buy things on sites that don't support options like Google or Apple Pay. It's similar to using Chrome Autofill to enter in your credit card details, but with an added layer of security. Each virtual card can only be used for a specific transaction, though they do support recurring transactions if you want to use it for subscriptions. Bill Reddy, Google's president of commerce and payments, told The Verge they are not charging anything if you use a virtual card, so vendors won't have to give up a cut of their profits and customers won't have to hand over their credit card details. Reddy said that you'll be able to use Chrome's virtual card numbers to mask Capital One cards to start, but they will be adding support for Visa, American Express and MasterCard too. So um, whilst this is still in the very early stages, I think it is a really interesting development for several reasons. From a customer perspective, I think it's great that Google will be making this functionality more widely available. You know, it's definitely not new as a technology, but up until this point, it's not been super easily accessible uh, in the most part. By contrast, though, I think there'll be quite a few fintechs and banks out there that are a bit annoyed by this announcement and the fact that Google is planning on making this available for free. In the UK, for example, we've seen Monzo offer virtual cards, but only as part of its paid plus and premium accounts. So I think um, that's going to be interesting to watch. And I think subscription businesses are also going to be keeping a close eye on this and the uptake of virtual cards more generally as they're often positioned as a way for helping customers to cancel subscriptions more easily. So good for customers, potentially not so good for businesses, but exciting. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week, which is that the Vatican will create an NFT gallery to democratise art. This was reported in Art News. The Vatican surprised the world this week by announcing a partnership with Metaverse developer Sensorium to develop the first ever virtual reality and NFT gallery hosting Vatican art. The Humanity 2.0 Foundation, a Vatican-led nonprofit, is to work with Sensorium on the project with the ultimate vision of democratizing access to the Vatican's heritage collection. Upon its launch, manuscripts, masterpieces, and academic initiatives housed in the Vatican Museum, which is among the most visited in the world, will be available virtually to a wider audience worldwide. Founded in the 16th century, the Vatican Museum's collection consists of nearly 800 artworks by 250 international artists, including Michelangelo, Raphael, Salvador Dali, Vincent van Gogh, and Pablo Picasso. The Vatican's press representative claimed that the NFTs won't be used to sell products or objects, though it's unclear what they will be used for. Um, so what do, you, what do we make of, of this story? Is this clever? Is this... I mean, so I've, I've been to the Vatican Museums a couple of times as a massive history nerd. Um, and my favourite part of the Vatican Museums is there's like a sort of section that's quite buried quite low down where they've got all of the Pope mobiles throughout history, which is like my number one favourite part of a museum ever. So if the they... The Pope mobiles. The Pope mobiles, they're You're brilliant. A strange lady. I'm very strange. <laughs> but if they if they give me virtual reality access to the Pope mobiles, then I'm all in because it's it's brilliant. But yeah, that was that was my first instinctive reaction. Is she being serious? <laughs> I love a Pope mobile. Who doesn't love a Pope mobile? See now if you could take the Pope mobile and drive it in Mario Kart that is an NFT that I would probably Ooh. pay for. That's good. I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, it's I visited once the Vatican many, many years ago, and 
you know, it's it's a long trip for many people. It's an expensive trip for many people. So my first thought was, well, how cool that some people will actually get to sort of experience going inside the Vatican without having to fork out all that money to travel there. Um, but at the same time, then I thought, well, if how accessible is this going to be for most people? I mean, right? Because all this VR equipment and that sort of thing costs money as well. Ayer, I don't know whether you saw um, the story about the Saudi authorities um, recently developing a program to to sort of help Muslims to sort of virtually visit Mecca. Um, you know, just to, to broaden this beyond beyond just just one religion. Yes, I have. What do you think? This it's very interesting. But I, like as Marianne was just saying, I'd like to know like how expensive would that actually be? Because at the end of the day. If it's just as expensive, I might as well just go myself. <laughs> Is this a story of NFTs that could have just been a JPEG? Haven't we been posting images to the internet for about 20 years at least? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure that to that point on accessibility that this actually helps us in any way. No, it just, but I suppose if if it makes it more available to more people in, you know, in, in some way, then that's that's a wonderful thing. It was one of the kind of, few positives, I suppose, of COVID from a personal perspective was that some of these amazing museums and galleries, when they did reopen, you could kind of visit them in a less intensive way because the crowds weren't weren't so so big. So um, yeah, I had some amazing experiences in some London galleries, like seeing artworks that I've probably seen before amidst a crowd and not really um, taken in properly. And actually, I, I, that's, for me, is quite exciting, maybe that they might make these artworks accessible in a space where people can engage with them without being squashed by 50 million tourists all at the same time. So that that to me could be quite cool. Um, but yeah, at the moment, it's still quite light on the detail of how this is actually going to work. They've said that it's definitely not about you know making money. It's about opening up resources to the world. Um, but I think, again, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see if other galleries and institutions take this approach of trying to use nfts to claim accessibility to artifacts you know we've got a long and complicated legacy about how all of all these artifacts have ended up in the museums and galleries where they're held um and i think that's that's a conversation that kind of we don't want to dilute by just sort of claiming well you can access this if you can see it on virtual reality like maybe we need to be and um, thinking about how we get some of the physical assets back to where they belong as well indeed Okay, well, I've still got Bob's um, Popemobile Mario Kart bob- bobbling around in my head. So <laughs> let's let's wrap up um, this week's news show. Thank you all so much uh, to our wonderful guests. Um, where can people find out a little bit more about you? Um, Aya, uh, you first. Where can people find out a little bit uh, more about uh, you and your company? Um, people can find more about us on paymob.com and definitely on LinkedIn. And Bob? You can find us at solero.ca or me on completely non-monetized Twitter with no blue check mark at Barb McLean. Marianne? Well, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Bay Area Writer, even though I no longer live in the Bay Area. Um, and I also recently launched a fintech newsletter called The Interchange. So I'd love it if you signed up for that. And you can do so at techcrunch.com forward slash newsletters. And Kate? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Kate Moody, and on Twitter, also non-monetized and unticked, uh, at K8Moody. 
And as for me, Benjamin Ensor, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or on 11fs.com. So thank you to all of you for listening. Um, please join the conversation on social media or email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much and goodbye.